happy Saturday. I am sports family therapist, Dr. Lauren Pitts. This is House Talk Pregame. You all know who that nut is. Morning, morning, morning. Welcome back to episode 121 of House Talk Pregame. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How are you this morning, Dr. Pitts? I'm good. I'm good. I'll be even better if you promise not to take any cheap shots at me today, but I'm thinking considering today's topic, you're probably going to go above and beyond the call of duty to do that. And since we learned before we went live that you've got reinforcement today. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'm fully I, expecting I, to be under attack, but it's okay. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do my best to be on my best behavior. I did. I think I did really well last week, you know, under the circumstance. I think I did phenomenal last week. We're not bringing it up to the very end, but since we already got it out of the way this morning, we might incorporate it somewhere, somewhere in the conversation. But speaking of that, we got a really exciting conversation lined up for you all today. We have an amazing uh, uh, guest with us this morning, Mr. Eric Diagati. Uh, did I say your last name correctly, sir? I want to make sure yes, I said that. Yes, no, sir. You're good. Yes, sir. Welcome, welcome, man. Thank you so much for joining this morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, and I'm going to try to give you my best, even though I just found out Dr. Pitts is a Cowboys fan. Look, man, I, I tell everybody that comes on the show, look, we all can't be perfect. You know, some of us fall short in some areas. Um, you know, I, I think Dr. Pitts is a, a, a walking cognitive distortion. Somebody is so achieved and successful as her, loves such mediocrity. Um, but that's neither here nor there. You know, sometimes, hey, look, we, she has plenty of time to work on all areas of her life and be the best version of herself that she can be. Um, but we love her regardless, man. But once again, uh, sir, we really appreciate you being on the show this morning. Um, Mr. Diagati resides from North Jersey, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Resides in uh, North Jersey. Has over 20 plus years of experience in the fitness industry as a coach, trainer, and instructor. All right. Mr. Eric has worked with uh, the likes of such as uh, New York University uh, Medical, the Navy SEALs, the Mayo Clinic, multiple universities, also along with some Olympic gold medalists, All-Americans, National Champions, World Series Champions, and Pro Bowl athletes, high school athletes, collegiate athletes, if you name it. He's worked with them in some form of capacity, and we're so honored to have him on the show this morning because we had a really good topic this morning called "Keeping the Good, Fighting the Good Fight." You know, and, and when we talk about fighting the good fight, we know that all athletes, regardless of, of level, whether it's high school, collegiate, or professional, all athletes at some point or another hit a wall, or they hit a point of where they feel that their stock or their value might not be where they needed to be. And what can they do to adjust that? What can they do to, you know, maximize whatever uh, potential talent, things like that they have, but also for athletes who might be on the backside of their career and know that their career is getting ready to come to an end. So we have a plethora of questions and insight that uh, Mr. Diagati is going to share with us this morning. Um, and once again, we thank you for being on this morning, man. Um, so before we get started on that, Dr. Pitts, do you have any um, any mental health tip of the week? Any any news you'd like to share this week that you've seen going on in the world? I'm going to incorporate my mental health tip in the discussion like I've been doing the past few weeks, but I do have a couple of um, news items that I want to share. So I want to give a shout out to Olivia Samuel, and okay. she is the daughter of a former classmate of mine, actually not class, he, he graduated in 1989, mm -hmm. um, but, but here's the amazing thing. So she, Olivia was the starter for Wake Forest for basketball. And she's going to play for the final four team for Virginia Tech next season as a graduate transfer. So we nice. want to celebrate her. Her dad is David Samuel III. Super, super, super proud of how Olivia is representing our hometown of Salem, New Jersey. I just say in jest, her dad played basketball, but he wasn't exit. 
<laughs> he wasn't that good. She, she's balling out. So she is representing. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete, phenomenal person from an amazing family. So congrats to them on that. Um, I just wanted to say real quick, thank you to Gary Clement of the Gary Clement radio show on the 12th. He had me on, wanted to have me to share some expertise on mental health and relationships. Also want to thank Mark Lee. He had me on, um, that was on the 17th. And I'm actually going to be on with him again on this coming Wednesday. He has a podcast called The Online Dinner Party with Mark Lee. Again, addressing mental health and relationships. Um, and then on Thursday, I was on the Des Experience, which is another podcast with a gentleman by the name. He's also from New Jersey. He's from Belmar, New Jersey. Um, uh, his name is Desmond Sims. He had me on to discuss relationships and mental health and, and really just thank you to each of these gentlemen for being willing to address the stigma associated with mental health and to really be able to have some robust conversation. They're doing some great, great, great work in the podcast world. So just wanted to shout them out, ask you all to check them out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and every place else that they are and show them some love because they're really having some great conversations around relationships and mental health. So that was all I had. Oh, that's what's up. Shout out to you and shout out to those uh, podcasts out there. Make sure everybody check them out as well. So yeah. that's what's up. Okay, check you out. Okay, star. Yeah. All right. Let me, me and a grown up before, <laughs> let me get your autograph before you blow up real quick. You know, <laughs> charging you for my autograph. So let's go ahead and jump into this conversation. Before we hop into this conversation, Eric, please let the people know, you know, kind of how you got your start into, um, you know, after reading your bio and everything, man, if, if I could describe you and who you are right now, it seems like you were just you know, an educator and a teacher and somebody who really is passionate and, and really enjoys your craft. So how did you get into this space that you are in now? And, and, and you know, what, what led you into this space of athletics? So uh started, uh, it's actually 25 years ago this year, uh, started into kind of the, the, the fitness and performance realm. And uh, not because of any great athletic feats of my own, as they say, those who can't do teach. Um, and so um, the scattering report on me was he's short, but he's slow. Um, so uh, with that, I was always fascinated with, with, trying, to get, with trying to get better. Um, and, and so the, the, the physical realm kind of started actually with a back injury. And I was um, uh, late sleeping on the floor for months, just being stubborn. And my mother said, finally, you got to go to the doctor. Went to the doctor, sat in the you know waiting room for three hours to have him, you know, finally see me and say, hey, it could be anything. Yeah, it could be anything. I waited three hours for you to tell me that. So I just went to the gym. I just looked at and just started doing every back exercise I could think of. And by some miracle, started feeling better. And so started feeling good. And so I started working out more. And then I said, I, I want to learn more about this. And then said, This is the path I want to take. So studied exercise science in school and then started training and then started to to kind of create a niche where I was doing a lot of different things that other people weren't doing in my field. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because my, I have a brother who's studying physical therapy. And so while I was learning as much as I could about strength and conditioning, I'd also learn as much as I could for on his end, what he was learning about helping people, you know, uh, either come back from or avoid injury. And so quickly I became the guy in the gym where if, a, if you came into the gym and and you had something that, you know, was some sort of injury or some sort of limitation, they immediately said, oh, you, you got to go Sierra. And so I became that guy. And then eventually, 
um, started getting some athletes to say, Hey, I have a you know son with any hamstring injury or, Hey, can you help my, my teammate who has this shoulder stuff? And then, and then started to tie and say, look, I, you know, not only can I help that shoulder, I can help you, you know, in terms of performance and that led into working with different teams. And then that just kind of grew from there and, you know, um, had experience now to work with a lot of different groups, like you mentioned, and, and work in a lot of different settings. And what's interesting is now, uh, as I'm progressing now to train other trainers and coaches and mentor them and, and provide um, education for them, the biggest thing that I've learned is as much as I can go down a huge rabbit hole, we could talk for the next few hours about the intricacies of, of strength and conditioning and what exactly are the variables you need to manipulate within, within programming. None of it matters if the person isn't in the right frame of mind. If I can't connect right. with them, if I can't get them to buy in and get them to believe in not only me, but themselves, then none of that stuff is going to matter. Uh, so like Yogi Berra said, 90% is half, half mental. So um, understanding that now when I work with teams and consult with teams, a lot of what I'm working on is culture. A lot of what I'm working on is getting to get buy-in. It's getting them to, is to getting them to, to be part of a, a system that they can trust and, and trust in that process. Um, and, and that's a, a, is just as valuable, if not more valuable and the first stepping stone to, to all of it. Dope. Man, that's, that's really dope. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that when you talk about you know, when you when you start with programs and being able to change the culture, but also identify what culture exists there currently, what can be unlearned and relearned, what can be, you know, exploited and exacerbated to do better and what needs to be take, completely taken away. Um, and so for me, when I, uh, I played D2 football at Virginia State, and I always tell people, you know, my first two years in college as an athlete were, you know, what I would consider the bad news bears years of my uh, collegiate career. My last two years, we were a college program. We had things structured, organized, and things like that. But when I first got there, we literally had one of our um, our uh, phys ed professors was our strength coach for the entire athletic department. And he had that job because he was a bodybuilder. He would compete. He would do shows. So in our school's mind, oh, well, he does bodybuilding. He can be our strength coach. And so I can't tell you, you know, my freshman and sophomore year, how many people we had, you know, uh, labrum injuries, how many people had knee injuries, because we were lifting like we were getting ready for a bodybuilding competition, not like we were getting ready to go out there and, you know, move our bodies and contort our bodies in ways that, you know, oftentimes they shouldn't be for, you know, 60 minutes. Um, and so speak to that a little bit about when you go into programs and think, how important is it to have somebody who has, you know, has that experience and has that knowledge of how to construct a uh, um, a safe strength and conditioning program. Because a lot of times we see if, you know, sometimes, you know, certain teams just get the injury bug. And a lot of times they look back at the strength and condition and say, well, what was going on during off season? What kind of prep was going on before, you know, workouts during the season and things like that, you know? Um, so kind of speak to that a little bit about some of the things you've just seen in your career, as far as those uh, type of programs. So you're saying your team looked real good coming off the bus, but you didn't, but it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't I mean, well, yeah, we, you hit the field. yeah, we look real good, but I mean, even our second string looked real good until they got out there and they're like, Oh man, you know, they just got muscles with no, you know, athleticism whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah, so there's, there's a great term that a colleague of mine uses big, strong and useless. Uh, we call that. Um, so, uh, so when we talk about injuries, it's multifactorial. There's a lot of things that, that go into play into that. And so obviously your preparation, is a big part of that. And that's the first stressor. I always explain whenever I start with a team, I say I have two goals and my second goal is improve your performance. I said, my first goal is to keep you out here and your number one ability is your availability. So no one ever scored a touchdown, hit a home run 
or got a goal from the training room. And so my job is to, to, to keep, and I talk to, and I work with the training staffs and the mental, uh, I'm sorry, the, 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 um, the, uh, the rehab staffs with all the teams I work with to say, my job is to keep your room empty. None of them are looking for business. So if I can keep the room empty, that's, that's my number one job. And then from there for performance. Now, uh, ironically, if you do it right, a lot of the things you do are the same. We don't necessarily have to have specific injury prevention program. It's just a well-structured strength conditioning program that considers, like you said, the fact that you need to be athletic. What are the positions, the shapes, the postures, the speeds that you need to, that you need to encounter to, so, and then I need to prepare you for that. Now, I could do everything right and we could still have a bunch of injuries. Now, what else could play into that? We can have in, this is why uh, a lot of the discussion and the education I have with teams is, all right, so let's say we finish our, our first workout and everybody's, you know, our, my job's not to beat you up, all right? We don't get better with just beating you up. Anybody could beat you up. Like you said, I can go grab the history teacher could beat you up, right? Um, and we can get into that whole thing of how, what strength and conditioning has become and it's come especially and even at the high school level it's become legalized child abuse but i'll circle back to that um so um but let's say we just finished a workout and and you know you've done a workout and you're tired and the first thing i say to the group is say all right that would suck if we really did that for nothing because you might have just done that for nothing right. and they're like what do you mean and like i say well here's the thing as i said here's how training works you challenge yourself your body goes oh my gosh i don't know what you just did but if you're going to keep doing that I'm going to have to get better at that. That's how we survived as a species for thousands of years. So if you start running, you get better at cardiovascular adaptations. If you start lifting heavy weights, your body says, oh, I better build some muscle and get stronger. So the magic isn't happening here. All I'm doing is planting the seeds. Now, what you need to do is provide the soil that allow it to grow. Now, what provides that soil? It lets you do the other 20 hours of the day. Now, mm -hmm. what are the two biggest factors in recovery? Ask? Okay, they kind of go they'll shoot up hands and say certain things. And I say, it comes down to two buckets, sleep, number one, sleep, and your, yep. nutri your, your nutrition and hydration, number two. Mm -hmm. And I say, if, is you could do the great, I can give you the greatest workout in the world, but if you stay up all night tonight playing Fortnite or Call of Duty and you're, and you're drinking Red Bull and you're eating, you know, uh, fast food, you just wasted your time here. Like you haven't right. given yourself what you need to come back. And so there's, there's correlations where if you get less than six hours sleep, your injury rates go up right? Mm -hmm. There's correlations of lack of hydration will affect your, your nervous system. Will, the injuries will go up, right? So those things are incredibly important for them to understand. Now, even, even if we get that all right, if they're going to bed at the right time, they're eating all the right things, they're well hydrated, I can send them off to a coach that his, he's going to do what his coach did, what his coach did, which mm -hmm. they think they're going to make them mentally tough by making them run a bunch of gassers or a bunch of uh, 110s, and they're going to undo everything I just did. And so a lot of what I have to do is, is educate the coaches and, and how they have to structure their practices and their workload and, and how to make sure that we are finely tuned, that we are ready to go, whether it's Friday night, Saturday afternoon, whenever it's going to be, that we all we have to be on the same page because I can't have him undo what I just did in the last nine months. Right. Go ahead, Dr. Pitts. You, you said something, Eric, that, that struck a chord with me when you talk about correlations and you hit a lot of buzzwords that we hit as clinicians, right? Can you share with us the correlation between the sleep, the nutrition, the, the culture, and the overall right frame of mind as it relates to the mental health of the athlete and how that 
impacts performance and or increased possibility of injury? So obviously there's, there's strong correlations in data that show uh, connections with sleep and uh, you know, mental state and in terms of um, outlook and those sorts of things. Same thing could be said for nutrition, eating fatty, sugary foods and, and those sorts of things. But to take it on a broader scale when you talk about culture is one of the other things I explain is that your actions are gonna directly impact you and your performance, but realize that unless you're playing an individual sport or you're, you're gonna impact everybody standing next to you as well. Um, and so when you stay up all night and you don't take care of yourself and now you're not at your hundred percent and the person next to you on either side is you're now letting them down and putting them at greater risk. And so that's a, that's a level of selfishness to some degree that it, it is not just a responsibility for you, but it's a responsibility for others because they're, we're expecting them to do the same for you. And that's what a team essentially is. And that's one of the, the beauties of what team sports can teach you is to teach you about the sum being bigger than, than all the parts uh, uh, and being able to get people to understand that, that you need to be someone that can be counted on as well as um, you need to be able to, to trust and count on other people as well. And so that's can be done. That's why I said when you could, what you become out of training is more important than what you get out of training. Now I'm circling back. I did. I'm sorry. I circled okay. back. I, I did. I threw, I threw a thing out there and I got, I can't just leave it out there is where strength and, strength and conditioning at the high school level becomes child abuse. And I thought about with something that you said, Ryan, is that especially when you have programs that don't have money, right, which right. you have at the lower college levels and you have in high school, um, that what do they do? They get the defensive line coach because he's a power yeah. lifter or because of whatever, and then he becomes a strength coach, right? Now, what happens when they don't know what they're doing or they want to create this guise of to tie to, to what you talk about, Dr. Pitts, is, is mental toughness, is they think if I really beat you down, that's going to make you tougher. Well, right. it, does, it doesn't work that way, right? If anything, you may just dis discourage them. And mental toughness will go hopefully go into at some point what it really is, but that's not going to do anything. And so what happens is I get a lot of, of kids that will come to me who get hurt by their strength and conditioning program. And that's crazy to say, because the whole reason you're doing it is to build more resiliency and to become better, but it's actually, you're actually getting hurt doing the one thing that should be helping you. And it's because we go all out. So the, the analogy I give is if you had had your, your child come home, a high school child come home and you said, uh, and they said, oh, I need Advil. I can barely even walk. I'm like what happened? Oh, well, it's something that my math teacher made us do. Well, you would immediately have that math teacher brought up on charges, right? Right. But if your coach does it to you or your strength, you know, uh, coach does it to you, oh, well, that's good. That's tough. That's good. That's going to make, no, there's no difference. That's, that's abuse, right? It doesn't mean you never get sore, but if you're, if you're beating someone down to that point, you're not getting them any better. You just not only lost that day, but you lost the next three, four days where they're, they're diminished and they're more at risk. So understanding the art of doing that and, 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 now, people get freaked out when you hear about load management because they think of their favorite NBA player oh, sitting, in a, yeah. sitting in a suit and on the bench and saying, well, I pay for these tickets. I don't get to see so-and-so play. Well, because so-and-so is trying to make a living. And so they have to manage um, to make sure that they can do their best to make a living for themselves. And they can also play beyond uh, and into the postseason. So there's a bigger thing in mind with that in terms of managing their load. Now, how they do that and the art of how each individual and how each organization does that is unique, but, but that's where it's, there's an important thing within there to understand that there's a, it, there's a bigger picture here for you, right? And I want to go and, and talking about where, where 
uh, athletes and kids develop value for themselves is, is when I say, look, there's, there's a value to you that goes beyond this workout, right? There's a value to, you know, I coached youth baseball for 15 years and I've, I've gone out and I've taken out my pitcher when they were lights out and they were blowing everybody away. And I said, look, you're, you're at 80 pitches. And I said, your arm is more important to me than that plastic trophy we're going to get. So I don't care. I, you could go more, but you're not going to because, because I see bigger things for you than what this plastic trophy or free sweatshirt we're going to get at the end of this tournament. Man, you, you made some really great points. And, and to your point about um, high school uh, coaches, you know, um, you know, being barbaric at times, it's funny you mentioned that uh, my high school coaches were actually all former military. Um, and so our workouts, our practice were very, you know, loud, uh, aggressive, abrasive. <laughs> and so I always tell people like my high school weightlifting program was actually a little bit more structured than when I got to college my first two years. However, the detriment to that was is a lot of times my coaches prioritize strength over technique. Um, and, and to give you an example, when I was a sophomore in high school, I, I can vividly remember, you know, putting 425 on the squat bar. And, you know, to me, I'm thinking like, you know, this is cool. It's four plates. That's, you know, what everybody talks about weightlifting. You know, if you want to bench press, got to be two plates. If it's squats, got to be four plates or minimum, you know. So here I am 15 years old thinking I'm doing something, you know, incredible. But when I'm coming up, it looks like I'm doing good mornings as opposed to a squat. So, you know, like lower back at 15 years old is, you know, being trash, but I got 425 on the bar. Um, and then when I get to college, you know, our strength coach, and, and this is kind of, you know, where, you know, my knee problems originated from. Um, my, my strength coach in college uh, was a ass to grass type of person. Um, you know, when you got 135 on the bar, you warming up, you know, trying to get the knees lubricated and loosened up and stuff. Yeah, ass to grass at 135 might be, you know, pretty okay. You got 515 on the bar, 565 on the bar, and you expected to go ass to grass. Like, that's probably not the smartest thing to do. However, you know, I'm 18, 19 years old. I don't know no better. You the strength coach. This is what they give you 25, 30,000 a year for at a D2 school. So I expect you to, you know, have some passion into it. And then, you know, when you go down with 225 on the bar and you hear a pop in your right knee, you're like, oh, well, you know, thought you knew what you was talking about. So I think that's really important to really emphasize, um, you know, how important, how detrimental it can be to not have somebody in the right position teaching the right things. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you as well, um, kind of talk a little bit about the philosophies of how, you know, how it goes into training, you know, team sport athletes versus individual sport athletes. You know, a lot of times, sometimes strength coaches can feel that, you know, their strength program is a one size fits all. No matter if you're on the football team or swimming team, I got you. I got the perfect workout for you when that's not necessarily the case, you know, how you structure team sports programs and things like that is vastly different from individual sports. So kind of talk about that a little bit um, and how you help strength coaches, you know, prepare for those type of different programs. Yeah. So first it's, it's, it's really just understanding, preparing the demands and working backwards to so say, okay, what are the demands of your sport? What are the positions you need to get into? What are the speeds you need to meet? How much of that do you need to do? How often, what kind of breaks do you get? What is it, you know, what, and then even within that, you can have uh, uniqueness in that. Like if I have a team that, that is a football team that runs a spread offense versus a 
traditional like ground and pound type of offense, that's a different type of conditioning. If I have a basketball team that's a, a running up and down the court versus more of a half court game, that's a different type of, of preparation. So, I, and then we also have to cater it to the fact that who are the individuals that are there and that like, so one team I'm thinking of in particular this year, we lost a lot of talent uh, to graduation. And so we don't have as big, we're not going to go out and maul people with some of the, the, the bodies we had last year. So we have to make up for it with speed somehow, somehow. So we were going to focus more on that because they're not going to have a growth spurt between now and September. So I need to be able to figure out how to work around those limitations and work within the demands. Now, that's what you have to look at is that the first thing I say when I start with anybody is that everything we do in this room is not to get you good at doing things in this room. You're not working out to get better at working out. You're working out to get better at this thing. And every rep, every set, every workout has to get you better at that end goal. And so if you, if you don't have a correlation and a path for that, then you're really just working out for the sake of doing it. That's where you also see, you know, uh, you talked about the military stuff. I have insane respect for what I've seen in the military. I've gotten to teach on right. several uh, military bases. I have one coming up in June. I've, I've, I've been on two of the SEAL bases. Um, and the, you see these coaches who will take a Navy SEAL workout. And what they don't understand is that Navy SEALs, what they do to train is to mm -hmm. weed people out, not to develop right. you as a SEAL. You're already right. a SEAL when you walk in. They're just trying to weed you out. And that uh, of the all the applicants for, who were Naval cadets who want to get into the SEAL program, more than 80% of them get turned away. And of that 20% who make it, more than 80% of them won't even finish the training. And so these are the most elite of the elite and you can't take that process and then apply it to some 14-year-old kid who's never been in a weight room. And there's actually been tragic incidents where they've had to do like where the SEALs, they make you carry uh, the boat overhead so you yeah. can learn about counting on each other. Because that's something you're going to do. That's, that's going to meet the demands of what you're going to do in real life if you need to go in, into uh, combat. That's not right. what a 14-year-old a, a, a needs to do in freshman football. But they've had kids and one kid tragically died because his coach had them carrying him a log overhead dropped and fell on their head. Like, how do you explain to a parent that that's what you did because you were trying to make a kid tougher when all that kid wanted to do out was get a cool t-shirt, make some friends, maybe meet a girl because he's on the football team. And now that was it because you had to do some dumb mental toughness drill. So if there's anything I could, could move against is that our kids are even, even at the highest level, even in professional athletes, they're not military. That's not what right. you're preparing for. Right. So make sure you're preparing for what it is you actually have to do and how I pre prepare the wrestling team. There's some general preparation that every physical human being should be able to, to do, whether it's you're just training for general fitness or you're training for a sport. And then once you've gone past that, and we get specific. It's got to be specific to what the end goal is. And so you have to understand what that end goal is and understand the physiology and, and the kinesiology that goes into meet that. And that's how you, you develop a program. Right. Go ahead, Dr. Pitts, because I had another follow-up question um, as well, but go ahead first. Eric, you just made a, a, a really good point that I think our audience needs to hear the differentiation, or at least I think there's a difference. You all talk a lot about mental toughness. Share with us if, if, you, if you believe there's a difference between mental toughness and mental health, because as your training coaches and what have you, that example that you gave, what tragedy, right? Yeah. I mean, that that's just tragic. When you look at the difference between mental toughness 
versus mental health. Because if, if we're honest, there's a whole lot of athletes that based upon their performance, based upon their presence in the athletic arena, those on the outside looking in would say, you know what, he's mentally tough, he's a stellar athlete, look at all he's accomplished, he's broken this record and that record and the other record. But then you see on the news, said athlete had some sort of mental health episode. Can you speak to that difference if you believe there is one and tease that out a little bit for us, please? Yeah, I think it's important to first have the framework of what your working definition of mental toughness actually is. Uh, mm -hmm. Mental toughness is not, I can run more gassers than you or mental toughness is that I can put more in the bar than you. Um, Cause I know a lot of people who could do both of those um, and they, they were not mentally tough when it came, when it came down to it. And that's really what it is, is, is really health, whether it's physical or mental is about resiliency, your ability to handle stressors. And mm -hmm. so what those, and, and be able to, to, and, and from a uh, physical standpoint, it's not all that different in terms of the framework of how I look at it and define it is it's your resiliency and how you can manage your states. Can you manage, can you manage your states as an athlete is that, can you turn it off as much as you can turn it on? Can you put on the brakes as much as you can put on the gas? That's physically. Mentally is, can you get ramped up and excited? Because when you're talking about your practices, Ronnie, that are ramped up in high energy and so forth, I have no problem with that. I actually love that, right? Right. But can you, can you manage your states within that? Can you, in between plays, can you bring yourself down and settle and focus? Or are you just uh, run through a wall? Because that rah-rah speech, that motivation, it's been shown in research, that motivation lasts about three minutes once you hit the field. And then you take oh, yeah. that first hit, or you take that first hit, you see that first fastball over the plate, and that rah-rah speech is long gone now. And now you have to rely, on your, you have to rely on your resiliency. And can I handle this? Do I trust myself to handle this? And do I have a skill set to handle this. And, and that's actually part of what we try to sneak into the physical training is to give you the skill set, how you can manage that. And so how do we do that through the physical training? Well, one of the biggest ways you can manage your mental state is through breathing. And so uh, I am not a counselor. I'm not, I'm not a health professional like you, Dr. Pitts. So, uh, but one thing I know is that I can manage your mental state through, through breathing. And so we have this, this system that, that governs everything in our body from our heart rate to our blood pressure, our adrenaline and so forth. It's called our autonomic nervous system. And so uh, when you have balance or what's called homeostasis, you're right in the middle. You have your fight or flight system, which is ramping up. That's the sympathetic nervous system. Then you have your parasympathetic, which is your rest and recover. And so sometimes we don't always want to be in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we need to go red line, right? When that ball snaps, right? Or ball's in play or that fastball's coming at me, I need to be right, ready to go and ready to be explosive and powerful and all the things I train for. Right. But in between pitches, in between plays, I have to learn to settle myself because I will fry myself out. I will never make it to the end of the game or, or if I continually be at, at that level. And so I need to be able to also calm myself down. And breathing is the gateway. It's kind of the hack to get into that. And so if you, if you exaggerate your inhale, you're going to get more of a sympathetic response and excitation. If you exaggerate your exhale, make your exhale longer than your inhale it's going to calm you down. You can lower your blood pressure, lower your heart rate in as little as three to six breaths. So we use breathing strategies to get people to use, okay, prior to, uh, prior to you step into the batter's box, prior to your serve in tennis, prior, 
I want you to, and you'll see a lot of professional athletes do this where they'll close their eyes. They'll kind of go through a process and then they'll breathe. Right. So uh, that's one way we can hack into it. Your, um, your, your process also in terms of your um, routine has something to do with that. Like golfers will go through a very specific routine. You'll see baseball hitters or pitchers will go through the same routine before every pitch, before every swing, because what it does is it gets you into the practice uh, in terms of your nervous system to say, this is no, I don't know if this is a practice round on a Tuesday afternoon or if it's the 18th hole at the Masters. So when they did, they actually timed, uh, I believe it was Arnold Palmer during uh, one Masters tournament. And his pre-shot routine was in within one second of every other pre-shot routine that he did throughout the entire weekend. He had it just so mechanical. So because his body and his brain connected to the point where it didn't know the difference between two minutes left in the fourth quarter or two or, or a practice on a Tuesday afternoon, because you kind of get yourself prepared. And that's really circling back mental toughness is, is that I can stay in this even keel and I can perform whether it's a Tuesday afternoon when nobody in the gym, in the gym, or I can do it in front of a packed house. And that's why I have the same routine before every foul shot. That's why I manage through my breath and I can manage my states. That's really mental toughness. Now, how does that translate? That translates to I have, a, I have a very difficult, uh, I'm sitting down for a tough test. Right. I'm, in a, I'm in a stressful situation. I'm in a situation that I have to know how to be able to handle myself so I can manage my states so I know when to get, sometimes I need to ramp up, some needs to, needs to calm down, sometimes I need to be even keel. And so being able to manage your states is really what I think good mental health and mental toughness is. Man, you made a lot of great points. Um, the first thing, I, as far as breathing goes, I think that's really a phenomenal point. Um, and one of the things that helped me in my athletic career that I started in high school, um, it wasn't nothing fancy, but I, I really started to incorporate the process of breathing in my nose and exhaling through my mouth, um, especially in between plays, um, if we were just working on and things like that. And what I started to notice by the time I got to college, you're, you make a great point about as far as, you know, being in homeostasis, being redlined and being in a state of, you know, uh, rest and recovery. In football, football plays on average last three to four seconds. And I was an offensive lineman. So for three to four seconds, you know, not only am I enduring, you know, what is considered a, a mini car accident every play, but also the physical exertion, the force that is being put out for that three to four seconds is max effort. You know, and to your point, if you were to give max effort, you know, during the play, after the play and before the play, you will be gassed by the end of the first quarter, especially in a game of football where, you know, most offenses, especially now they run anywhere from 75 to 90 plays, you're going to be absolutely gassed. So if you don't have that practice of breathing and being able to, you know, be, I always tell people is the difference in being dangerous and being reckless, you know, to your point about, you know, mental toughness, mental toughness is recognizing to be dangerous, but not reckless in the moment, you know, I need to, for three to four seconds to be as absolutely dangerous as I possibly can, but recognize that I need to pull back so I can be dangerous again for another three to four seconds. Mental health starts to come into play when, to your point, I think, I think the most important role for coaches in practice is to have a level, a level of controlled chaos to be able to expose you almost in what we consider in therapy, exposure therapy, where, you know, I expose you to this trigger, I expose you to this event or situation in a controlled environment and progressively allow you to work through it. Kind of, you know, kind of how when you have, you know, the right set of coaches and strength, you know, staff to help you through that controlled chaos of practice game, you know, practice and game situations. Um, I think that's really important. Um, as, 
I wanted you to kind of touch on this too, because you mentioned this early, and I think this is really important. Um, when we talked about athletes, you know, um, you know, being multi-sport athletes and stuff like that, especially at the high school level, we see nowadays, especially a lot of athletes who are maybe one sport focused, whether it's, you know, the AAU circuit for basketball, baseball, football, whatever the case may be, you know, you have these athletes starting. I'm not going to say earlier than what we started when we were athletes. I started at eight. Most kids start between five and eight in their respective sport. But when I was growing up, it was more encouraged for you to play more than one sport each year. You know, you did football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring, track in the summer, and you just kept it going. But your body had a chance to get something, you know, different. It wasn't just the same exposure day in and day out. Now at times we see a lot, especially for basketball players, we see basketball players who, you know, they start playing eight, nine years old, but they get on the AAU circuit and then it's basketball year round. And now we see where, you know, some of these NBA professionals and even collegiate athletes where, you know, they get to 18, 19 years old. Well, you've been running on a hardware court for, you know, almost 10 years at this point, your knees are probably shot. So how do you help, you know, high school athletes and parents manage their athletes and not get burnt out too much on one sport? And do you think that being hyper-focused on one sport is more of a detriment as opposed to exposing to multi-sports for athletes? That's a, that's a tricky one, Ron. We're going we're gonna to need some time for this one. So first understand that all of this is driven by money. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. All right. There's, if, if, if you're a parent of, of a child who plays sports, uh, I highly recommend uh, Michael Lewis uh, wrote a book. He's the guy who wrote uh, Moneyball and, and, and uh, yeah, Blindside. Yeah. He, he has a great book. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but it's, it's on the youth sports industrial complex, he calls it, and the billion dollars that are mm. within it. And so I saw it myself. I had two boys that played baseball up in, uh, and into college. And uh, what happens is, is you, if you just put, you know, when I grew up, yes, we started younger, but when I played baseball, it was, you played 18, 20 games, a little league. And then if you were good, you got asked to play in the all-star team. You got to play an extra two or three weeks. And then you were done to ride your bike and swim and play, you know, just pick up stuff with your friends the rest of the summer. Now, uh, you, you know, the status symbol is to play on a club or a, or a travel team. Um, right. If you play on that traveler club team, you're also usually required to play on your town team. And then you're playing, uh, they have tournaments starting, you know, even here in New Jersey, I, I saw, um, you know, kids playing in tournaments, St. Patrick's Day when it's 40 degrees outside and they've had no practice leading up to it. And they'll go all the way up until the first or second week in November. And, and then you go to, to states where, you know, California, Texas, and in Florida, where they really have a ton of baseball, they're doing it year round. They have Christmas mm -hmm. and New Year's tournaments. And so the thing is, is that that club team, if it's not really well, well run and it's, and, and they'll tell you, Hey, well, if you don't play in the fall, then you're not going to make our spring team. And so there's that pressure and that, that feeling of, Oh, I don't want to be left out. So now I, you know what, I'm not going to play football anymore because I have to make the club team because if I don't make the club team, then I may not make it to high school because all the kids on the high school team right. all play club and travel. And so now this is trickling down to eight, nine years old. And mm -hmm. so now you're really stealing the joy away from kids and it's four. And then on top of that, it's okay. Well, now it's not enough to play a couple games in a week. Now you got to go to a tournament where you're going to go uh, spend thousands of dollars just to, to drive or fly somewhere to play a team that looks a lot like the team that I played from down the street. They're just from someplace else. And I'm going to play all weekend and spend all this money and, and spend every, and I don't know what it's like to have to sleep in on a Saturday so I can maybe win a plastic trophy and get a free t-shirt. So the monetization of kids, and then all of it kind of leads to this false hope of you're going to get 
uh, an opportunity to play in college. And, and Ronnie, you did it. You know what it's like. And, and how many kids actually get a college scholarship? Depending on your sport, you know, they don't understand with with baseball. There's 33 kids small. on a kind of. There's 33 kids on a college roster. 11 of them get a, get a, a full scholarships, and even those they end up chopping up, so they divide it amongst them. Um, and so you would have been much better off taking that money, investing in a tutor, and gotten better at, and getting because there's way more academic money than there is athletic money, right? But it's this industry that it's put on, and then the, the pressure that's put on the kids and all of that that goes with it. Um, becomes very difficult. And then to try to say, I only want to do, I'm going to try to do that with more than one sport. Then it becomes even harder. Now, that being said, does it pay off sometimes? Yes, it does pay off. When you see kids that, you know, especially in a highly skilled sport, like golf or baseball or something like that, that's very skill intensive. Um, whereas, you know, if you're really, really good at, I've seen kids who are stellar soccer players and then sophomore year of high school, they said, you know, I'm going to try football. And they were great uh, skill players. That, that doesn't happen in a skilled dominant sport where I very, very rarely ever seen a kid who was just super athletic, who just tried baseball his junior year of high school and, and was able to, to, to cut it. So sometimes the specialization in, in, in those uniquely skilled sports, it's somewhat necessary, but it also is necessary that the, the child truly love the sport. And it's not the parent right. saying, oh, he loves the sport. Mm, really? Because I'm your coach and I, he comes to practice. And I have to drag him onto the field and I have to drag, and he hasn't done any of the drills I told him to do at home. So that's, that's, doesn't sound like a lot of love for me. Um, so uh, unfortunately it's the parent wanting the kid to love the sport and it's, mm -hmm. and it's really not. And, and then the, 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 the kid, even in the, they may be 12 years old understands that, well, that's how I get love and appreciation. And, and so I better keep this up because they, they want me to love the sport. So I want to make them think I love the sport, but I, I hate it. I really do. Right. So there's so much to unpack within there. Um, then, then from the whole physical side in terms of development in that there's just no time. I have a kid that I was texting with yesterday who I see who's one of these AAU basketball kids and it's, you know, trying to squeeze in time. He's, you know, he's like, I'm trying to squeeze in time for my workouts, but I have my skill coaches and then I practice and I have all this stuff. And then, you know, I explain to him when I sit down with, with kids for the first time and say, you're going to have, you know, you have your, your team stuff that you may have to do. You have the stuff that I'm going to ask you to do. And then you have your schoolwork. And then you also need to be a kid at some point. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and so like, you have to understand and appreciate that that's, that's a big part of it as well. Uh, if not, they're just going to burn out. And so if we want to play the long game and in, in what's called LTAD in my business, long-term athletic development, appreciating mm -hmm. all these factors, understanding that, that, that that kid who got cut, you know, from the travel team in, in sixth grade, that kid may end up being the best kid in high school. Mm -hmm. um, that kid who is the best kid on the eighth grade team may mm -hmm. end up never playing a snap of varsity football. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's not understood. It's everything's in the moment of, hey, he's the best right now. Mm -hmm. Can I speak to that for a minute? Because you just you, you just struck a nerve with me or. Uh, mm. And I don't know if you do this or not, so I want to ask, what, is, what are your thoughts about as you're, as you're training coaches and trainers and what have you, what is your thoughts around the importance of educating parents? When I think about the number of parents that I've had on my caseload over the years who I, I kid you not, you two are going to be like, are you serious? You may be able to believe me. 
the number of parents that I've had on my caseload over the years who come in and want to address the anxiety and the, the distress that they experience because of their children's involvement in athletics. Now understand, we know clinically that there's a much deeper issue at play. So I unpack that, right? But you, you may be surprised at the number of parents that are projecting and transferring their own baggage, their own adverse childhood experiences and their own traumas around their athletic involvement onto their children. And what do we know about mental health? There are some conditions that predispose the child to mental illness. So when you have these parents that are living vicariously through their children, and to your point, are putting all this pressure, all this pressure on these kids to perform, 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 how beneficial do you think that it would be for us to, as you're training, you know, coaches and trainers, or it doesn't even necessarily have to be you, but somebody, us, having these developmental conversations with parents around how the pressure that they're placing upon these children can adversely impact the child's mental toughness and their overall mental health. Because for real, they don't even want to be here. They just want to be a kid and have fun. And we live in a society that's not allowing kids to be kids and have fun anymore. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and I kind of have a little bit of a unique perspective because I've gone through it as a parent and I got sucked into it, even though I knew I, I knew it because I saw it on the other side, I professionally, I saw it from the outside and you still get pulled into the vacuum. Um, it's, it's just knowing how to manage that to some degree. Um, sometimes, you know, everybody thinks the most dangerous parent is the one who was the superstar and they want their, their son or daughter to be the superstar like that. Um, that does happen occasionally, but it's more the exception than it is the norm. The most, the more dangerous ones are the ones who never did. Um, yeah, and so absolutely. one of, one of the, one of the expressions I was always telling my kids is they'd say, you know, you know, Mr. So-and-so's, you know, saying this and that, or, or the coach is saying this or that. And I said, you know what those are? Those are the words of a man who's never put on a pair of cleats, Right. <laughs> that no one who's ever done this would say that no one, you know, I remember one dad came into, I was coaching my son's team and dad came in. He's like, you guys don't want it enough. You guys, it was baseball. Now he's like, you guys don't want it enough. You don't, you don't want it. I'm like, that's not how baseball works. Like nobody wants to ground out to the shortstop, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah. And if you do it, you would understand that. Like I actually had the humbling experience. So I had, you know, played baseball growing up and then, and then played a little bit in men's leagues, you know, and then when I had my kids stop and I said, I'm a coach, my kids coach for 15 years. And now my kids, kids are growing. I said, you know, when you're done, I'm going to go back and play. And I just recently started playing again. First day out, 0 for 3. And it was so, it was for me, as frustrating as it was, it was maybe one of the best experiences for me as a coach to say, like, I, I understand like when you stand in that box, as much as this team played, it's, it's all on me yeah. and it's not easy. It's the hardest thing in all sports to hit a round ball, the round bat when someone's trying to make you miss. And so the humbling aspect of that and being able to appreciate, and I've always said it as a coach, but to live it is a different thing is to say this, you know, a lot of sports is about failures. 
So is a lot of sports is about <laughs> mistakes. Every time something happens, someone made a mistake. So Ronnie, if, if you, if you gained yards on a play, they made a mistake because they didn't do their job of stopping you from gaining yards on a play. Right. right? So someone's a mistake is being made every single mm -hmm. time the ball's in play. It's a matter of, did you make that mistake? And you're going to make them because you don't gain yards on every play or, you know, or, or, or you would just keep scoring nonstop. So, so there's a mistake being made every play that the chance of going back to the mental toughness thing is how do you react, respond and adjust to that? And it's very hard to understand that if you haven't been through it. So that parent who's never been through it doesn't understand what it's like. And the last thing you want to hear after going over three is a, is a car ride home for 45 minutes of everything you did wrong. So, um, right. You know, right about that. Yeah. And, and you, so, make, you, you make a really great point. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that as far as, um, parents who you know want their kid to go you know d1 or think their kid is going to be a professional if it's an individual sport how do you how, or even the athletes themselves and i think social media has really exacerbated that as well you know athletes have this you know kind of distorted perception of was well if i show up in the gym if i break a little sweat and you know i i, I get at least maybe some b's and c's on my report card i can go to uh, uh florida or i can go to alabama or i can go you know get drafted in the second round of the mlb draft or something like that how do you how do you keep in perspective and keep um, keep it real with parents and athletes about, you know, what it really takes to go from the high school level to the next level? One of the things I you know, for me, I was an athlete who was fortunate enough to go play at the collegiate level and have a full ride with it. And I understood how hard that process was, that recruiting process of really making yourself marketable and really separating yourself from literally the entire country of linemen that were, you know, in high school at that time. But how do you help, you know, parents and athletes understand that, you know, D1 isn't always the end all be all. There are other divisions of college that are really phenomenal as well. But also, too, just because if you don't go D1 doesn't mean your career is a bust either. Uh, there's a couple of great points there. So number one is the first question I would ask, kind of almost like what I was talking about in, the, in our last question is, have you ever seen what a division one athlete looks like up close? Have you ever seen what a professional athlete looks like up close? Um, and see how they move, how powerful they are, what that actually looks like, because I have, and I know what that looks like, right? And I'm watching your, your son or daughter, and it doesn't match up. Doesn't mean it will never match up, but right. as of right now, that's, that's not there. And here's what, here's what I've seen. And so you have to understand just like people don't appreciate, right? If you're, if you're at the sports bar and you're watching, oh, that guy sucks. That guy was the greatest thing to ever come through his town. He is phenomenal. And even on his absolute worst day, he will run circles around anything you've ever seen. So um, you need to appreciate just how talented. I said, do you know why 80,000 people give away their Sunday and spend hundreds of dollars to go watch? You know why there's millions of people and why it's a multi-billion dollar interest? Because they're freaks. They are the best of the best of the best of the best that it is you have to be so incredibly special to be there. All right. Yeah. And, and, and so that's, that's the first thing to need to understand. Number two is that if you have gifts that those gifts, the end game is not always to be able to, um, to be able to, to be in the NFL. Cause we were talking before I worked in the NFL for nine years. Like it's not as glamorous as you might think it is um, in, in a lot of cases. And, and um, you know, you're one play away from the end of your career, any, any play. Um, so there's also other ways you could do it. If you can leverage your talent to get someplace you might not have gotten otherwise, 
I have a young man I just saw before we started uh, started here. He's gotten he's getting looks from from multiple Ivy League schools, right? Mm-hmm. Does he have the grades that if he was just a student would get into an Ivy League school? No, it's insanely impossible to get in as just a student. Yeah. But as an athlete, leverage that, and if he gets to go there and has that degree, that's like way more said. valuable, way more valuable than a, spending a year in the NFL. Absolutely. And I think that's such a great point. And, you know, and, and I just, um, I'll say this before I let Dr. Pisco real quick to your point. Um, you know, when your first question is, have you ever seen a D one athlete or professional athlete? I used to always tell people, you know, for me, like I was being recruited by the university of Maryland, um, and was phenomenal football player, but I was short, you know, I'm six one, you know, in, in the real world, six one is above average, but in this, in the football world, being a six one lineman, you were a dwarf out there. You know, when I was going on my recruiting trips, the other linemen they were recruiting 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", 3'10", 3'20", and looked like Greek gods. You know, here I am, you know, 6'1", 295, and I look like, you know, just the average, you know, just high school player, you know, that's just really good. So to your point, absolutely. Um, And then to to your other point about, you know, being more than just an athlete, if it's not for you, I think that's a really great point. I always tell people, you know, yes, did I have NFL dreams? Absolutely. Did injuries prevent those? Yes. However, I had a full ride. I got my education. I got my degree. And to your point, my life has been more profitable post football career than I would have ever imagined had it being during the football career. And to your point, if you're not one of the top three round picks of any professional sport, well, in basketball, it's only really the top round, but any other sport, the top three rounds, outside of that, every day, it could be your last day for that team. And so just having that pressure of knowing that you're already walking into that facility with two strikes, you're already walking onto that practice field with two strikes. So you have to be damn near flawless in everything you do. Just that pressure of being perfect and being in that environment to work your way up just to have half of what the other athletes have. Yes, those are a lot of things to factor in and think about, you know, when you when people talk about We you lost Ronnie. We yeah. lost Ronnie. He was on a roll too. He's in a good spot. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, he was. Um, so what I wanted to, to ask you, Eric, and, and and I want to circle back to what you said about the educational piece. That's that's my heart and soul, you know. Um, I tell people all the time it's scholar athlete, not athlete scholar. It's why, in your opinion, do you believe that there's so little emphasis on the scholarly part of the journey. Why are people not getting it? Because nobody posted in the newspaper or an Instagram post about what I got on a chemistry test. Um, it, but but you're gonna you're gonna post how what my forty time was. You're gonna post what you know how many touchdowns I had or or, or how many points I scored. So um, it's just they're, they're, that's you know from a, a sensational value. Um, you know, if people, I'm sure Ronnie could attest to this and people introduce him, they'll say, yeah, here's my friend, Ronnie. I mean, he played college ball. Yeah. It's how he's going to be introduced. Not here's my friend, Ronnie, who's got a, a you know, a degree in whatever, right. Yeah. It's always going to be an easier intro because it's a sexier intro. It's, it's a cooler thing to have. So, um, you know, with that, but it's, it's certainly much more fleeting. You could, you know, once you get those brains, you're not going to hopefully lose them for the rest of your life, but, but your physicality is going to go away at some point sooner or later. But what I think is so interesting about that, and you, you've said it repeatedly throughout the show, and we, we know that it's the driving force. It's the money. So if it's all about the money, 
and you know that your physicality is going to expire. And I know common sense is not common to everybody, but it seems like by reason of, you know, deduction that people would figure out, oh, darn, the, the athletic piece is going to, to go away. But if I can emphasize the scholarly piece, then I'm now in a position to be able to make the money. It's like, you don't hear people talking about Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Yes, we know the Michael Jordans of the world and the Magic Johnsons and all of that. But when you look at the number of millionaires and billionaires all over the world, the majority of them were not athletes. They weren't. It was this. But there's no emphasis there. And I just, I, that is just mind boggling to me. Well, I, I will tell you this as a parent who went through it and, and I, you know, had kids that played on the travel teams and went to the tournaments and the hotels and that yeah. stuff. Unless you've been there, it's, it's easy to say, you know, it's not about that. But when, when your kid is in it, it's, it's very hard to say. It's just a matter of how you manage that and how you manage those expectations. Look, the reality was even for my son, you know, he, my, my older son got offers to, to, to play at a bunch of different schools. And luckily enough, you know, what I'm most proud of is that I had given him the, the mindset that said like, great. So this school says I can go play and start as a freshman, but like, it's an art school in the middle of this downtown city. And I've been studying, I have a 3.8 GPA. I, I, you know, I've been studying, I got the high test scores. I'm not going to go. I want to study business. Like, what? so what? So great. I get to say I played D3 baseball for four years and I graduated a degree I don't need. I don't, you know, I don't need that. So, but some, some people just want so badly to say, Hey, I'm being recruited. I want to be liked. I want to be sought after that. They'll just take that. And, and I can tell you, because I've seen it on the other side is that I can't tell me any kids I've trained that, that don't even make it through their freshman year. I have kids that never even made it to their first class because they transferred out because they, they wanted to go to the status because they were getting recruited or they felt wanted, but they didn't realize that, you know what, they, same thing they told you, they told 20 other kids right. and they all play your position and they're just as big and just as fast and just as strong as you. And they might want it a little bit more than you, quite frankly. And mm -hmm. so you're going to get there and you realize that they made you feel special because they need you as a number, but yeah, yeah. you're not all that special when you really get there. That's why there's a hundred kids on the team and only 11 get to play at a time. You know, or that's why there's 33 on a baseball team and there's only nine get to be out in the field. So understanding that and having that appreciation and even saying, hey, well, look, I'm getting recruited by this level school, but mm -hmm. I'm never going to play there. So yeah. do I, now that may, may be fine. I know kids that have trained that, that were backups that never, ever stepped a foot on a field, but they want to be part of that. Uh, they want to be part of that process and be, they wanted to be at that environment. And they said, you know what? I never played, but I got a great education. And yeah. I got to go to the school and they were never going to let me in anyway. Yeah. So I leverage that talent. It's a matter of how you manage that and yeah. not get sucked to let it manage you. Right. right. Sorry, uh, our, our power had flickered for a second. So I apologize for uh, just disappearing like that. Um, but Eric, I did uh, want to ask you one more uh, question uh, before we wrap up. Um, we talk about we've talked about athletes, you know, you know, high school, collegiate, professional, you know, during the careers and things like that. I wanted to ask you um, if you could offer some insight and advice to the athletes who are transitioning from, you know, competitive sports and how to maintain um, not just not necessarily physical, well, not necessarily sports performance, physical peakness, but just physical peakness throughout the remainder of their life. 
Um, and, you know, me personally, that's something that, you know, I personally, you know, battle with since my uh, post playing career is having the mentality for when I go in the weight room and in the workout um, for 14 years, I always tell people when I went into the weight room or gym, it was the mindset of I had to lift the entire gym and be, you know, fit and strong in order to go out there and move grown men who are my size and bigger out the way. Now, as a, you know, just a dad, I don't necessarily have to do that thing, but it's still kind of hard to walk from that mentality of having, you know, just this physical performance that you had and trying to tailor that into something that just gets you, you know, throughout the day. So what are some things that you offer to athletes who are, you know, in their post-playing career to maintain physical fitness, but not necessarily in also shifting that mindset of competitive weightlifting or performance to just performing just to be, you know, just to function as an adult? So the, the first part of that uh, we were actually talking about uh, right before we went live is one of the challenges for athletes uh, when they stop playing is that their, their schedule has been structured for them some, mm-hmm. since they were very young. You, you were brought to school, you were brought to practice, you were, you, you know, when you got to college, you know that you had your classes set up for you, you had your, tra- you know, your training table, you had your meetings, you had your, your, every, your tutors, everything was lined up for you. And then even in the pros, you have all that stuff lined up for you. And then that goes away. Now you got like, now you have to manage, you know, your free will of your entire day. So the first thing, and, and this really goes with anybody who's looking to, to really be healthy and fit is that they need to have certain non-negotiable habits that you say that, that basically coordinate and tie with your identity to say, no matter what happens, rain, shine, uh, late night, early morning, I'm going to do this today because this is part of who I am. So whether that's, I, you know, I walk daily, whether it's a breathing and meditation practice, whether it's, I do a certain number of pushups every day, it's almost not as important what that is. And I know it sounds crazy for somebody who teaches trainers how to write programs. I'm not always, I'd rather have you do anything consistently than the best thing erratically. So the biggest thing is say, what are going to be my non-negotiable habits and not doing, you know, where I think I'm going to start, you know, the famous four words in, in health and fitness is it all starts Monday, like Monday, I'm going to start and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to never eat a, a gram of sugar again. I'm never touching a drop of alcohol again. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then it usually lasts about to, to the first Reese's cup on Wednesday afternoon. So we have to say, what are my non-negotiable habits that even if I veer off the path, I know I will at least do this every single day, whatever that may be. Okay. So that's number one. Number two is if long-term athletic development is a long game, well, the rest of your life's an even longer game. And what we have to do is look at uh, certain factors to say, um, can I can I move well, right? And, and looking at that to say that I don't want to be the one who's got the, the the war stories of my achy knees and back and all those things. I want to be able to pick up my kids and my grandkids. I want to be able to still be robust. And there's a uh, uh, Dr. Peter Atia has a great podcast called The Drive, and he just came out with a great new book. And he talks about your um, last decade of your life. And he starts with his patients by saying, what do you want that to look like? What do you want to be able to do? You want to still play golf, you want to still hike and say, okay, well, that's what you want to be. And then we know time, you know, is undefeated. And so it's, you're going to lose some muscle mass. You're going to lose some strength and some pliability and some of those things. And, and so if you want to be that at 70 or 80 or whatever that last decade is, you need to be this at 30, 40, 50. So that kind of sets your, your, your markers of where you need to be. And so moving well is one of those big things um, that you can, you can, you know, you can get up and down from the floor is one of the, the things that actually there's, there's research that shows your ability to do that ties in with your longevity. 
um, and be able to get into different positions and, and be pain-free and, and not have to worry about aching ankles, knees, backs, hips, and that sort of thing. So, and then once you're able to move well, then you want to be able to, can you move often? Can you run up in, you know, a couple flights of stairs and not get out of gas? Uh, can you go for a hike, go for, you know, those do those types of things and, and not be out of breath. So having some uh, some capacity with that, some some conditioning and some cardiovascular health is very important. And then also having um, strength and stability, whether it's as you get you know older, worrying about falls being one of the big uh, issues that that ties in with mortality, but also just being able to be robust that I I can do what I need to do and I don't need help. I can carry in all the groceries. I can get my luggage into the into the overhead compartment. I can uh, do whatever I, I I have to do what life demands and then some. Um, would be kind of how I want to check, you know, have those that checklist of what I want to do each day and each week. And then that's really the long game of it. Um, and if I can, you know, if I can look good in the process, if I can feel good in the process, great. Um, but realize that how many guys like yourself, Ronnie, are banged up and don't really, you know, feel great doing what you did previously and realize right. that that's not the way to feel great. Right. And mm -hmm. so if you had to choose right now, would you rather look, you know, would you rather lift a lot of weight or feel great? No one cares how much weight you lift right now. Right. Right. They did, one, they did at one point. No. When you walk in a house and you, and, and you walk in a house tomorrow and you say, guess how much I bench pressed? No one's going to care. Right. Exactly. But when they say, hey, can you help me get this under the sink or hey, can you go? Can you carry this in for me? It, that matters. And so right. that's what that's really you have to, to, to think about and say, you know, what is it now? doesn't mean you can't still be strong doesn't mean you can't do those things but that's not your your priority is it's not at the expense of those other things that i talked about right thank you and if i could just have two more uh quick fire questions for you real quick um number one thank you for your answer by the way that was really insightful thank you for that um my first quick fire question is what is to this to this date what is your most proud um achievement or moment as a strength and conditioning uh teacher and coach and the second quick fire question is what um what's on your bucket list of things to do as a strength coach and teacher moving forward hmm. okay so first one um you know i've gotten some really cool texts um i'm gonna see if i can find it real quick so like I'm gonna give you an example. Like these is this is what I treasure. Um, to hear uh, uh, I don't want okay. Uh, I know I'll put you on the spot, man. Just, all okay. Take your time. So um, here's, this is from a text I got. This is Tuesday. Coach just committed yesterday to a Ivy League school on a great scholarship to study political science in the pre-law track, okay? Just wanna let you know uh, and wanted to thank you for teaching me so much, not only in athletics, but also as a man and how to carry myself. I really do attribute a lot of who I am to your teachings and the way, I, and the way of carrying yourself. That's that. Cool. Right. Yes. Those are what it's about. Right. Um, it's, you know, it's cool to have a Super Bowl ring. It's cool to, to win state championship. That's way freaking cool. Right? Absolutely. Any day. Absolutely. Um, in terms of what I like to do, um, my next kind of mission is is kind of building the next, you know, um, 
army of coaches and trainers that are better equipped, that are better able to have the skill set to have an impact on kids and be able to have stuff like this. Um, so being able to, to, to teach people in my profession and, and be a mentor to people in my profession and get them to, to not have to make all the mistakes I made in 25 years and get a jump start on, on all those things I've learned would be, is kind of my next mission. Man. Thank you for sharing that, man. Dr. Biz, did you have anything um, else? Yeah, I'm, well, I was just gonna wrap us up, but- um, Go ahead, no, after you, go ahead. Please tell folks if they wanted you to come in and train their staff, if they wanted you to come in and speak, if they want you to work with their teams or parents want you to personally train their athletes, what are you doing? Where can folks find you? How can they get in touch with you? Share your social media handles, all your business, put it out there so that folks know how to, to connect with Eric Diagata. Okay, so the, the, the simplest thing that I, I do, because I do a lot of these things and speak at conferences and so forth, is, is I made everything into one hub, which is my website, which is just my name. It's ericdegatti.com. It's E-R-I-C-D-A-G-A-T-I.com. Um, there you have all my social links where I'm constantly posting stuff every day, uh, whether it's you know, training tips or it's you know, clips from the podcast that I do or interview, interview other performance professionals. Um, mm -hmm. Or I also have, on my, you have my contact information in there, but I also put on there, a, uh, a tab in the homepage called Ask Eric. And so if you have a mm -hmm. question of anything yeah. related, because people can't necessarily call in or ask questions here, that if they say, oh, I'd love to know about this, you can answer that. That goes right to my email and then I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Yeah. Oh, oh. Ronnie, final thought, you close us out. I changed my mind, you do it. <laughs> well, Eric, man, once again, it has been an absolute pleasure for you to sit with us this last hour and chop it up with us and give us insight as to what you do and the impact you're making in the world, man. It is truly uh, amazing to hear your story and your testimony and all the good things you're doing, man. Continue doing those great things. Continue being a light for our community and, and for those athletes out there who are trying to, you know, be the best version of themselves and also be the best young men and women that they can be as well through your tutelage and guidance. So thank you for that, man. Thank you for uh, kicking it with us this morning. Um, for all those out there, um, thank you for tuning in. Make sure you like and subscribe to the channel and page. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you listen to podcasts at. And be back here next week, same time, same place for episode 122. That's it for House Talk pregame. Eric, thank you once again, sir. Have a phenomenal weekend. And everybody else out there, have a phenomenal weekend as well. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.